Um, I've been watching Fear Factor, like old Fear Factor episodes. Holy crap. Number one, the early 2000s were so sexist. Like the camera work. Like there was one girl on an episode that I watched um, that I felt like really resonated with me and I think would resonate with both of us. Um, She was like, I'm just here because I have a ton of debt. I, oh yeah like, she's mm-hmm. like i don't i don't lift weights i'm not an active person but i'm like why not i have a ton of debt and then she loses in the first stunt and her response to the camera Ooh. is i guess i can't pay off my debt i'll be leaving the country soon <laughs> <laughs> that's my catchphrase <laughs> i looked her i looked her up but she has a very common name, Christy Baker. But oh. I was like, I really hope she was able to leave the country. Christy, um, if you're listening, get back to us on how that went for you. <laughs> it's actually very hard to fake your own death. Not implying that that's what she was doing, but I listened. It was either a podcast or a book that I listened to. That's like why it's really hard to fake your own death. And I was like, well, that's depressing. Why is it hard? because nowadays there's just so much of a paper trail and if you like fake a suicide there's just only so many ways that you could do it and also now cctv is such a huge thing it's like literally everywhere that it would be nearly impossible to do that oh yeah Um, for sure and yeah just with and then like getting a new if you wanted to have a new identity you have to like absolutely cut off everyone in your life you have to be ready to like you can't keep in any contact because they can track emails like even if you create a new email they can trace it back to you um so it's just like very it's much more intensive than it was back in the good old days where you could just like (laughs) write a birth certificate (laughs) yourself on a typewriter Hello everyone and welcome to Pink Collar Crime, a true crime podcast focusing exclusively on crimes committed by women. I'm Rachel. And I'm Natalie. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Each week we're going to tell you about one or two cases of crimes committed by women and discuss details, motives, similarities, and differences, etc, etc. If you like our show, tell your friends. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating and tell us what you love or don't love about the show. And give us a follow on social media at pink collar underscore pod. So today we are talking about mothers who kill their children. It's a very exciting topic, very lighthearted. Um, you know, just all the things that we love to talk about. But um, obviously I'm being sarcastic and this is kind of not just kind of it is a difficult uh topic to talk about but it is something that happens and i think bringing awareness to that issue and also doing it in a very approaching it in an educated stance rather than you know as uh kind of like a shock value 
I sensationalizing think it. And stuff. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, you know, typically the way to go. So yeah. I'm hoping that our, our covering of these cases is, you know, very informed and sensitive to the issues and that we can focus on, um, you know, kind of what went wrong in these cases and where yeah. systems failed or individuals failed in order yeah. to come up with a better solution going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, I know my case in particular took place in the 1970s, so there were a lot of learning curves throughout the process, and it's almost shocking now looking back on it and thinking, oh my God, like this was allowed to happen so many times before people started to feel suspicious. I think it's it's good news now that there are a lot more regulations in place, and especially within the medical community of um, you know, being more informed about the mental health of mothers and, um, you know, paying attention to families that are maybe struggling a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is my little introduction. I don't know if you have anything to add. You said you had yeah. some stats. I That's looked exciting. up some stuff. But you researcher, you. I've got a PubMed account. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so not... not don't take our laughing as you know an indication of how not how serious or how not serious this is but um the i guess official term for mothers who kill their children is maternal filicide um and so i found this paper written um it's kind of old it's from 2007 but it's called child murderers or sorry child murder by mothers um pattern and prevention um written by susan hatters friedman and philip resnick um and i think it was published in world psychiatry and so uh they kind of review the literature and give kind of an overview of maternal filicide perpetrators and so five major major motives um occur and so those motives include um, altruistic filicide and so that's when a mother kills her child out of love Um, she believes that death is to be in the child's best interest so for example a mother who is suicidal and doesn't want to leave her child motherless in the world Um, or a psychotic mother who thinks that um, she's saving her child from like a fate that's worse than death um and another one is acutely psychotic filicide. So similar. Um, and so that would be somebody who is experiencing sort of psychosis or delirium. And so the mother kills her child without any comprehensible motive. So she could have been in the midst of a hallucination that to somebody who's not going through halluc- a hallucination a hallucination um doesn't understand and um the other one would be uh fatal maltreatment filicide and so that is when um like death isn't the intended outcome and so maybe it was child abuse uh, maybe the mother was doing something um harmful to the child but had no intention of actually killing the child um and so that can also uh encompass like munchausen by proxy um which we've talked about in the past and 
Another is unwanted child filicide. And so a mom who thinks that her child is some sort of a hindrance. And the most rare motive is um, revenge. And so this is usually spousal revenge. And so when a mother kills her child specifically to emotionally hurt the child's father. Um, And so it could, I don't know if any of these from what you know, from your case, if you can already identify where that might fall um, or where your case might fall. Um, I have a good idea for mine. Um, But uh, they also found that filicidal mothers often are often are experienced depression, psychosis, or prior, prior mental health treatment and suicidal thoughts. Um, I don't know if the literature has been updated since this. this. I couldn't really find anything um, done in like the 2010s or more recently. Um, but I just thought some good background information. And surprise, surprise, the United States has the highest rates of child filicide. So of we need to do better. Of course they do. Um, The only thing I was going to add, so the majority of my information was pulled from a book called From Cradle to Grave by Joyce Eggington. This book is a little dated. It was published back in 1989, um, you know, closer to when my case actually took place. But they did go into detail in the end. They talked about, um, so they called it infanticide. Infanticide is when a child is murdered in the first year of their life. Yes, exactly. That's what I was going to say. So as they were going into the detail of the trial in my case, um, there was a doctor that was pulled in whose name I cannot remember, but um, it was a doctor from England who had talked about, and I don't know how, if there's been recent changes, obviously this was almost 30 years ago. Um, Math, I don't know. But it was talking about how cases like this are treated differently in England. And if a mother kills her child within the first year, it's automatically labeled infanticide and they treat it differently than they would murder. And they were talking about how sometimes mothers who are depressed view their children as an extension of themselves. And so by killing their child, they are, in a sense, um, you know, dying by suicide but not to themselves um it didn't go into it too much but i think that's a really interesting perspective to take especially when you consider um postpartum depression i think that that is something that could probably play a pretty big role in if a mother was to kill her child especially if it's within the first year but i don't think that my case my case is a whole other thing i am doing the case of mary beth tinning um so mary beth tinning was born at mary beth row on september 11th in 1942 in a small town in upstate new york while she was growing up her father alton Rowe, left to fight in world war ii and wasn't present for parts of her childhood Her mother had to work outside of the home to provide for her family during this time, resulting in Mary Beth being shifted around from relative to relative. Although it was just a product of circumstance, Mary Beth felt discarded, unwanted. Even when she got to spend time with her parents, they were pretty emotionally unavailable. Mary Beth made later claims that her father was physically abusive and would lock her in the closet if she cried. 
So Mary Beth's difficulties with attachment followed her into school, where she really had a hard time making friends. She would often lie to get attention and make herself seem more important. She also was described as being very moody, uh, showing that she may have had some difficulty regulating her emotions. She graduated in 1961 with dreams of heading off to college. However, her grades just weren't good enough to get her into any schools. She worked some low-wage jobs here and there before landing a gig as a nursing assistant in the nearby town of Schenectady. I would just like to point out that I can pronounce Schenectady correctly because it is spelled S-C-H-E-N-E-C-T-A-D-Y. And you wouldn't think that it was pronounced Schenectady, but because of my limited knowledge of the pronunciation of small towns in upstate New York, I know how to pronounce it. Anyway. Um, I'm really proud of you. <laughs> In Schenectady, Mary Beth was, oh wait, just like a small interjection. So there, have you ever seen The Place Beyond the Pines? No. Um, It's a movie with Ryan Gosling and Bradley Cooper. And there are some other people in it too, but I don't remember. But it takes place in Schenectady, New York, because Schenectady means Place Beyond the Pines in Native American. Good to know. It's an interesting movie. I would actually recommend it but nonetheless mary beth was set up on a blind date with a man who would later become her husband joe tang joe was quiet fairly shy and easygoing kind of the opposite of mary beth they married after two years of dating and had their first child barbara in 1967 joseph jr was born a few years later in 1970 so mary beth was ecstatic All she ever wanted was to be a mother and a wife. Perhaps Mary Beth had dreams of providing for her children in a way that her parents weren't able to provide for her. Mary Beth did try to be a good mother. Everyone around her could see how much she tried to care for these children, even if she didn't always follow through. In October of 1971, Mary Beth was pregnant with her third child when tragedy struck. Her father suffered a heart attack and was rushed to the hospital. Despite their rocky relationship, Mary Beth was desperate for her father's love, and this was the last opportunity to get something, anything, from her father. Mary Beth waited at his bedside and eagerly waited. I said waited twice. For any sliver of affection. Hard. Just two months later, in December of that year, Mary Beth gave birth to her third child, Jennifer. Mary Beth pushed to have Jennifer induced on Christmas Day, as the religious holiday held much significance to her. This decision possibly resulted in Jennifer's death. Jennifer was born with a meningitis infection. Eight days later, Jennifer passed away from a hemorrhagic hemorrhagic meningitis and multiple brain abscesses so everyone reacts to grief in different ways and just a disclaimer that there's no handbook for grief or time markers for how sad upset or angry you're supposed to feel but mary beth's reaction to jennifer's death seemed a little bit unusual perhaps because she was finally getting what she desired most attention when Jennifer died in the hospital, the nurses noted that Mary Beth didn't seem to be upset and didn't appear to show much emotion. It's possible that Mary Beth was in a state of shock and that she felt numb and couldn't exactly comprehend what had just happened. 
but there were some additional odd behaviors. At the funeral, Mary Beth didn't shed a single tear. In fact, she seemed to be enjoying herself at the reception, gladly accepting all of the sympathy and kindness from her friends and family. So Mary Beth was quick to get rid of Jennifer's things. She gathered all of Jennifer's toys and clothing and just threw them out. Again, it's kind of unusual behavior as we might expect it to be really challenging to get rid of these personal belongings. But people wrote it off as Mary Beth maybe not wanting to have those reminders around. Nobody wanted to be the person to question a grieving mother. So things got worse from there. Just 17 days after Jennifer's death, two-year-old Joey Tenning was rushed to the emergency room after having a seizure. Mary Beth was distraught, but the nurses and doctors couldn't find anything wrong with Joey. Just to be safe, they kept him under observation for 10 days. The doctors felt that after those 10 days, Joey was safe to go home. They didn't see anything wrong. Um, a few hours after returning home, Joey was dead. Mary Beth had brought Joey home, put him down for a nap, and according to her, when she went in to check on him, he was blue and not breathing. When he was brought to the doctors, they assumed it was cardiopulmonary arrest. They did not perform an autopsy. Mary Beth again got all the attention she wanted, and similar to Jennifer's death, Mary Beth was quick to get rid of Joey's clothes and toys. Six weeks later, their last living child, Barbara, was rushed to the hospital. Mary Beth said that Barbara was experiencing convulsions, and the hospital, who were aware of her many deaths, uh, or of the deaths of her other two children, wanted to keep Barbara for observation. Mary Beth, much to the shock of everyone, was like, nope, I'm, I'm good. She doesn't need to, to be observed. And wouldn't you know it, a few hours later, Mary Beth came back, and this time Barbara was unconscious. She slipped into a coma and died. The hospital attributed her death to Ray's syndrome, um, which I have separate notes. was a rare childhood disease that was kind of an epidemic in the 1970s. Um, but what was weird about Ray's disease is that you already had to have a viral infection for that to take place, which clearly Barbara was perfectly healthy and was fine. So that could not possibly be an explanation for that happening. Um, so I think I said again, they didn't perform an autopsy because they just assumed that everything was for the best uh, or not the best if a kid was dead. But um, so these children were all perfectly healthy before they passed away. Everyone around the family worried about a mysterious death gene, but eventually people started to get suspicious. When Mary Beth and Barbara were at a neighbor's house hours before her death, Mary Beth threatened, you're going to be with your brother, to Barbara when she wouldn't stop kicking. A nurse at the hospital even voiced her concerns to a doctor, which is what was the protocol at the time, but he dismissed it and was like, it's none of your business. Which, what a rude thing to say, by the way. You're going to be right? with your brother. What? R like, that's Sick. problematic in itself. And Very. <laughs> just, here's, like, another issue, too, is where the nurse voiced her concerns to a doctor, and the doctor was like, it's not our business. Because I think back then there was more of a, like, privacy thing. Like, it's not your business what anyone else's family is doing. You know? Yeah. I don't know. I wasn't alive back then, but that's just what I assume. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Mary Beth was childless and soon became withdrawn and moody. 
she may have noticed people starting to get suspicious or saw that there wasn't much sympathy left to to give and she decided that it would be a good idea for the family or what was left of it to move and start fresh somewhere else so her and joe moved to a new neighborhood and by 1973 mary beth was pregnant again she had given away all of her baby clothes and toys so her new co-workers at the restaurant she was working at threw her a baby shower timothy tinning was born on thanksgiving day he weighed only five pounds but otherwise appeared to be healthy three weeks later mary beth showed up to the hospital with timothy's lifeless body the doctors diagnosed him with sudden infant death syndrome and did not perform an autopsy um so another thing too is that sudden infant death syndrome isn't necessarily a diagnosis in itself it's just kind of a label for something that happens like a a kid suddenly dies and we just don't really have an explanation for it yeah Um, and it apparently you can die you could have sudden sorry they can classify it as sudden infant death syndrome up until you're like five or something it's kind of oh weird that is weird um having some LaCroix um so about a year after Timothy's death Joe started to notice that his food was tasting kind of weird he complained to his brother about the bitter taste and his brother was like uh you should go get that tested um Joe blew off this suggestion and assumed that everything was fine um so Joe's a really interesting character he never showed much emotion when his children died nor did he seem to be too curious about the causes of his death of their death um he showed up to each funeral wearing the exact same suit and would just sit quietly to himself at the wake um so Joe might have been a product of the time where men weren't necessarily encouraged to express their emotions but it is a little weird to me I don't know. Um, But so Mary Beth called her brother-in-law and his wife one morning at 3 a.m. She was screaming that Joe was dead. They rushed over only to find Mary Beth fully dressed and Joe passed out on the floor. Mary Beth was sobbing. I didn't do it. But had she called the police or hospital? No. Just, you know, something you think one would do if, uh, your person was passed out and the fact that she was like he's dead right away and i didn't do it (laughs) right right well because like what would naturally what you would naturally say is like oh they're unconscious or like i can't wake him up something's wrong stuff like that right also yeah i believe at this time she was fully trained in cpr so why wasn't she trying to do cpr uh she mm, so and two hadn't called police hadn't called the hospital um the hospital found that joe had a near fatal dose of barbiturates in his system all signs pointed to mary beth but joe declined to press any charges life went on and mary beth got pregnant again birth (laughs) control would be great for this couple right so on easter sunday in 1975 um is and on easter sunday is that when she gave birth i'm not sure i didn't write it down but all of her co-workers were really confused about this why would you keep having children if they all kept dying mary beth shrugged off their question saying i'm a woman and that's just what women are supposed to do 
they threw her another baby shower and just hoped that the curse would skip this child. The- I mean, I, I don't think that that's a good... Oh, your kids die, so, like, you shouldn't have kids. In her case, yes, because we obviously have hindsight, but since they didn't know, I feel like that's kind of a crazy thing to say. But I think it is weird for them to throw her another baby shower. Like, what? Right? Like, you should have things. <laughs> well, okay. Also, I have, like, separate notes that I didn't necessarily mesh too well with my current notes from the book. But there was a certain point where Joe's brother-in-law was like, why don't you get a vasectomy? Like, if she's not... And there was a certain point where Mary Beth claimed that she had her tubes tied, but was like, oh, I'm a medical miracle. I guess it just didn't work. Um, and I untied. Do- yeah, I don't think that there was any proof that she went in to have that procedure. And, um, whoa there. Skippy. Just all the noises in my place today. Um, and... Again, I don't think that Joe listened to the advice to go get a vasectomy. Um, so, yep, she was pregnant. Another another uh, baby shower there. And the doctors tried to be more prepared. They sent the child, Nathan, home with a sleep apnea machine after he was born. But do you think Mary Beth used it? Nope. 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 She That's didn't. Right. Why would she? Um... So she showed up to the restaurant one day in September with Nathan's lifeless body. Her co-workers were like, what are you doing here? Go to the hospital. And Mary Beth made another weird call. She drove all the way to St. Clair's Hospital instead of Ellis Hospital, which was much closer by. Nathan was pronounced dead on arrival and his death was attributed to SIDS again. So Mary Beth... Not not looking too great. Her sister-in-law said that she acted like a guest of honor at a party during her children's funerals. She also noticed that Mary Beth would cash the insurance checks right away, which would make sense if she needed to cover, like, medical fees or funeral expenses. Like, no judgment for how quickly you cash the insurance check, but Mary Beth used the money to go on shopping sprees. Her sister-in-law even remembered her saying... Oh, we just got the check for Nathan, so we're going to go get some new drapes and wallpaper. <laughs> like, I just can't comprehend yeah. how anyone could say that. Um, so, even more. I, I actually wrote in my notes, I can't even with what comes next. So, a few years later, Mary Beth and Joe applied to become adoptive parents. They, of course, had to interview with a social worker. And instead of being suspicious about all the untimely deaths of all her other children, the social worker felt bad for the pair. So they were placed with a young boy who didn't stay with them for long. Next, they became foster parents for a 10-year-old girl. Joe had a great relationship with the girl. He said that she reminded him of Barbara um, and in one instance even mistakenly called her Barbara instead of her, her real name. Um, however, when Mary Beth got pregnant again, she sent the girl back to the agency. She didn't have a need for her anymore, so why would she keep her around? And Sad. in it's so messed up. In 1978, they adopted a young boy named Michael, and a few months after, their seventh child was born. So they had two children again. Um, her daughter was named Mary Frances, and she quickly became, became the apple of Mary Beth's eye. 
Mary Beth appeared to lose all interest in Michael. And uh, so the second Mary Beth, Mary Frances, sorry, was born, she was like, nah, I don't care anymore. Um, in 19, in January of 1979, Mary Beth rushed Mary Frances to the hospital claiming she had a seizure. Luckily, the hospital was able to revive her. But one month later, Mary Beth showed up again. This time, Mary Frances was in full-on cardiac arrest. They were able to revive her, but Mary Frances had suffered irreversible damage to her brain. She was taken off life support and passed away soon after. Her death didn't really phase Mary Beth at all. Uh, she, you know, just out with the toys, out with the clothes, and before anyone else knew it, Mary Beth was pregnant again. So this is child number eight, if you're keeping track. How old track. is she at this time? Do you have any idea? Um, well, so if it's 1980 and she was born in so 1942, in if you do a little math, like in her 30, 40s, 40. 38, um, yeah, so she, she just kept having those babies very fertile i know that's what's very because i feel like sometimes women have a really hard time getting pregnant so it's almost shocking to me that she was able to have this many children although i guess in like the olden days that women had like 10 kids or the duggars that was that (laughs) it's possible medically i i guess for me i'm like why like I want to have children. One of the, my biggest like gripes or fears is the pain and the suffering that also comes with pregnancy and childbirth. It's insane to me that you would go put your body through that trauma only with the intention of creating murder victims. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Either way, child number eight, Jonathan, was born didn't live long. Uh, Mary Beth showed up to St. Clair's with Jonathan in 1980. Uh, With his lifeless body, they were able to revive him and they sent him to Boston Medical Center. Shout out, but not really. Um, I live in Boston for tests. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So they couldn't let go of the idea that this was just some crazy disease or disorder. Um, so even the more high caliber doctors at Boston Medical Center couldn't find anything wrong with Jonathan. So they sent him home with Mary Beth. She showed up at St. Clair's a few days later. Jonathan was unconscious, but this time he was brain dead. He he was kept on life support for a few weeks, but ultimately passed away. So the doctors could write off all these suspicious deaths as a strange genetic disorder until March in 1981. Mary Beth showed up to her doctor's office with Michael, claiming she was unable to wake him up that morning, which didn't make sense that Mary Beth didn't go to the hospital that was literally across the street from where she lived. She had to wait for a few hours for the doctor's office to open and just had this child that was dead with her. Like, everyone around, doctors, nurses, social workers were like, okay, now we are suspicious but they didn't actually do anything about it um so actual side note the notes that i have from the book itself um so mary beth and joe's landlord during this time was a man named chuck ray um so he had actually become pretty close with michael and um there was a time that 
After a camping trip, Michael was diagnosed with a hernia and he had to have routine surgery to resolve that issue. And the surgeon saw some um, on his back that there was some skin with different pigmentation um, and he wanted to test for sickle cell anemia. Um, And this was because he believed that Michael was black and that sickle cell anemia is something that occurs more commonly. I know this book is a bit dated and I think the information wasn't exactly correct because it said that only black people get sickle cell anemia, but that's not the case. Um, But either way, and just you could tell by looking at Michael that he appeared to have at least one black parent. Um, But Mary Beth this is like weird, maybe kind of racist, was like, absolutely not. He's not black. You're not testing for that. And the doctor was like, uh, well, he could die during surgery if it turns out he has it. So maybe we should just test for it. And she refused to the point where the doctors just performed the surgery without doing the test. And we're like, well, hope he doesn't die. I mean, I... As a doctor, I obviously don't know what would go into it, but if I were a doctor, I would, like, we're, like, we're either not doing the surgery or we're testing, and, like, we're testing. (laughs) Well, yeah, yeah, I think at that point that you should kind of, I, that's just, it, it's a weird situation, um, and obviously things were different back then. It doesn't seem like doctors really, like, had stuff regulations or because at a certain point wouldn't that be considered like child abuse yeah that's kind of my thought i'm like any court in the world would be like we're siding with providers and stuff so either and the doctor just was like i guess we're just doing the surgery so um (laughs) that's yeah that's the most information that i could find it just seemed a little shady and weird that she like wasn't willing to admit that her child was potentially black um but so back to chuck ray the the guy um so he was a letter carrier for the postal service um and so he worked with mary beth for a brief period of time i believe but he was so close with michael and and michael was really into superman that was like his thing so he knit michael a little superman doll which I think is so cool because, like, if you think about, like, gender norms and stereotypes, I feel like it's kind of um, unusual for, not unusual, but less common for a man to, like, know how to knit. And that he put in all this effort to make him a little Superman doll. And he, um, Chuck Ray at the funeral for Michael was really upset that um, he didn't want the Superman doll to be given away because he put so much effort into it and, like, made it especially for Michael. Um, But when he showed up to the funeral, he saw that the doll had been placed in the casket with Michael. So at the very least, it was nice that he could take that um, and that someone, you know, put that in there with him. Mm -hmm. (sighs) This is just, like, insane to me. Um, So, like I said, people were suspicious now, but they didn't do anything about it. Um, so in August of 1985, Tammy Lynn, Mary Beth's ninth child, was born. In December of that year, Mary Beth called her neighbor, Cynthia Walter, in a panic, saying Tammy Lynn was unresponsive. 
Cynthia was like, how could this have happened? I was just at your place a few hours ago and we were playing with her and she seemed fine. Cynthia rushed right over and told Mary Beth to call an ambulance. Mary Beth hadn't called an ambulance. (laughs) Um, She hasn't learned. And this is especially weird, too, because at a point in Mary Beth's life, she volunteered for the ambulance corps, and it was, like, kind of a bad job that no one really wanted, but she was, like, so happy to do it. Um, And her coworkers kind of made some comments that she, like, enjoyed accidents, and, like, the bloodier they were, the better. Um, And she would make up stories, like, saying that she delivered a baby, like, by herself in the grocery store. Um, so Does she have Munchausen's. Is that what this is? is yeah, this Munchausen's. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, so Mary Beth knew how to do CPR, knew the proper protocol for an emergency situation, um, which you know, obviously, is if it's your own child, that might traumatize you. But like the fact that you didn't even call an ambulance, um, Cynthia started CPR right away and found it really odd that Mary Beth hadn't. Um, so she was trained on CPR and was familiar with the fact that you don't just stop doing CPR. You're not like, oh, well, I've tried it for five minutes. You have to wait until the EMTs arrive. So the EMTs arrive, took Tammy Lynn to the hospital, but it was too late. She was pronounced dead on arrival. Mary Beth claimed that Tammy Lynn had gotten tangled up in her blanket, but this time no one was buying it. Cynthia stopped by Mary Beth's house the day after Tammy Lynn's death, only to find Mary Beth calmly eating breakfast as if nothing had happened. And after the funeral, Mary Beth hosted a brunch and was talking and smiling and laughing. An autopsy was performed this time, but there was no clear sign of death and she was diagnosed with SIDS. So the police chief was like, no, this is not acceptable. He reached out to a forensic psychologist, Dr. Michael Baden, and asked him what the odds were of nine children in one family dying from SIDS. Baden said, no, basically not possible. He took a look at Mary Beth's file and unsurprisingly found many red flags. There was no known genetic disease that would kill all of someone's children. There could be an increased risk, but statistically it was unlikely that all of someone's children would die. And also when it came to SIDS, it didn't offer an explanation for why the children had been blue when they died. Um, And it was strange that no one else had ever seen any of uh, Mary Beth's children having a seizure and that she was the one to find all of them minus Jennifer dead. So um, Jennifer was the only one who passed away, it appeared, from actual causes versus mary beth doing it um so wasn't looking good for mary beth she was brought into questioning by the schenectady police department in 1986 about the death of tammy lynn mary beth denied any wrongdoing at first but eventually confessed to killing three of her children nathan tammy tammy lynn and timothy she claimed that she had smothered them because she was not a good mother It was later theorized that Mary Beth may have only confessed to these three murders to keep Joe on her side. Joe had developed a closer relationship with the other children who were um, a few years older when they passed away. So it's possible that she was just trying to, you know, I I don't really know what the reasoning was. And obviously it's just hearsay, but it, it is odd that she would just confess to three 
and not the rest of them. So Joe came in to join her at the police station where she confessed to him that she killed Tammy Lynn. They brought in a court stenographer who took down a 36-page confession by Mary Beth where she shared how she murdered her three children. She would not admit to killing the other children, no matter what. Um, And she ended up, when she was arrested and charged, she was only charged with the death of Tammy Lynn. The police exhumed the bodies of the three children, um, of three of her children, in an attempt to get additional evidence, but there was some confusion. Um, The wrong body was exhumed for one of the children. It turned out that there had been some shifting, obviously, they only had like a certain number of grave plots at first and then they just kept adding happening um so it got shifted around and the other bodies were to decompose to get any evidence off of them the case was covered by local and national media people were angry that no one had stepped in sooner to stop mary beth they were upset at the lack of communication between the doctors and medical examiner's office and the deaths appeared to be natural Except, I feel like, not really, because if someone's blue when they die, how natural is it? Like, I'm not a doctor, but... I guess they mean, we didn't see, like, a stab mark or, like, a gunshot wound. So, natural. Yeah. Um, Autopsies were not performed in most of the cases. Um, So, Mary Beth, yeah, she... Oh, wait, I completely forgot to even talk about this. Um, So, during the trial... Um, there were rumors, A, about her being pregnant in prison, which, like, come on, lady. Cut the act. She wasn't, <laughs> thankfully. But there was this guy, his name is Harley Spooner, and he was a school bus driver. So Mary Beth drove school buses for a while, so that's how they knew each other. He called in during the trial and said that Tammy Lynn was his daughter, so he had a few other children by different mothers that really resembled tammy lynn and everyone was like absolutely that's totally your child like they look exactly the same um so he told the court that they had engaged in intercourse um a few times and at the time mary beth said she wasn't sleeping with joe because he beat her which i don't think that there's any evidence to prove that that was the case um And even after Tammy Lynn was born, Mary Beth told this Harley Spooner that he was the father. And he didn't talk to her. I mean, obviously, he found out through the grapevine that Tammy Lynn was killed. And he was like, I can't believe she killed my daughter. Um, And he didn't talk to her until after the death, until the trial when he showed up. And he was like, you'll know that I'm the father just by the way she'll look at me. In the trial like she'll be so shocked that like he'll be able to tell the drama so that was a whole thing i can't believe i almost forgot that like i was reading the book and that came in and i was just like what more things um <laughs> so mary beth was in jail for a long time but she was released from prison in august of 2018 During her 31 years in jail, she went before the parole board six times, and at the age of 75, she was finally granted parole. She was only convicted of the one murder. That's it. So they couldn't keep her for any longer. She served her time and apparently returned to Schenectady to live with Joe and is just now laying low. Laying low. Wow. It's insane to me that she is 
out. <laughs> but okay. I mean, they could only get her for one, one yeah. kid. But still, it's a child. I feel like I personally feel, and I am by no means a legal expert, but I feel like crimes against children should be the punishments should be much more severe. Right. Well. Nicely. So, like you were saying, I think this is a pretty cotton-dry case of Munchausen by proxy. I think you can kind of see throughout her life that she didn't get attention from her children, didn't get attention from her parents, wanted attention really bad, and thought that the best way to get attention was through killing her children over and over and over again. And to me, I think the whole medical system at this time was just not on top of their their stuff um there definitely should have been more communication and this should have been stopped after the first well jennifer was the first child to pass away but they don't believe that she was killed um after the first death like how was there not what in the darn heck people are so loud why didn't people drive motorcycles? Um, but yeah, you would think that, like, God forbid, the like, at the point of the third child, like, and the second one to pass away under suspicious circumstances, also, if a kid is blue, aren't, wouldn't you be like, hmm, maybe, maybe this kid was not doing, not didn't pass away from SIDS. Like, why? It just seemed like there was such a, like, oh, we don't want to ruffle anyone's feathers. We don't want to ask the grieving mother too many questions. So we're just going to let bad things slide because we don't want to be rude. Like, to me, that is the most appalling part. And I would hope that nothing like that ever happened again today because there is more communication and social workers would hopefully be more on top of their their game. So I am doing a case. I don't know if you're aware of it, but it is um, Diane Downs. Have you ever heard of her? I don't think I have. Okay, the details might be familiar to you because as I was reading, I was like, I know I've heard of this before. Interesting. Um, Okay. So... Um, her full name, uh, Elizabeth Diane Fredrickson, uh, was born on August 7th, 1955 in Phoenix, Arizona. Diane, as she goes by, met Steve Downs, the man who would soon become her husband while attending Moon Valley High School. Uh, after she graduated high school, Diane moved to Orange, California to attend, uh, Pacific Coast Baptist Bible College. Well, that's a name right there. Does not roll off the tongue. Pacific Coast Baptist Bible College. Um, And so citing promiscuous behavior, Diane was actually expelled from college after only one year. Um, In November of 1973, Diane was 18 years old. Uh, She and Steve Downs decided to run away together and get married. In later testimony, Diane claims that she was sexually assaulted as a preteen by her father, Wesley. If this is true, it could explain Diane's desire to get away from her parents' home and her possibly hasty decision to marry Steve at 18 years old. It's also possible that she was being 18 and 
apparently 18 year olds sometimes do that that's appalling Um, to me but continue (laughs) and so the following year diane welcomed her first child with steve a daughter named christy ann uh they had another daughter named cheryl lynn born in 1976 after cheryl was born diane had another pregnancy that she ended through abortion She regretted her decision to terminate this pregnancy, um, particularly after seeing anti-abortion pictures at a local fair. And I, having gone to college in the deep south, I recall days where I would like be walking through campus minding my own business and there would be people with like these massive like anti-abortion, like disgusting pictures. I bet I saw those same ones. Yeah. And so... One, I think doing that should be a crime, (laughs) but two, I can understand as somebody who, if you had a recent abortion and then seeing those pictures, like, um, why she could have had conflicting feelings. And I bet those pictures weren't even accurate because that happens all the time. They were like three stories tall, right? Yeah. Hearts were just... not accurate. They're not so gross. Um, Okay. I'm sorry. So... Diane would go on to say, I felt the need to do something to make amends for what I had done. When I had the abortion, I was to, I was led to believe that a six-week fetus was nothing more than mucus. Um, and so obviously the pictures depicted something else, which usually not accurate. Um, and so by this time, her husband Steve had already had a vasectomy. But Diane felt like she needed to have another child. In 1979, while still married to Steve, Diane gave birth to a son named Stephen Daniel, nicknamed Danny. Uh, Diane would later testify that she purposely sought out a friend named Mark Sager to father Danny. The year after Danny was born, uh, like Steve tried to live with it. Like he knew that she had an affair, but um, he ultimately decided to pursue a divorce because he, you know, was he knew that Danny was the product of an affair that Diane had with another man. Um, and so two years after the divorce was finalized, um, in 1982, possibly as a means of one providing for herself and her children. And also, um, for like more of like that making amends that she talked about, Diane opted to become a surrogate for a couple and gave birth to a little girl whom she named Jennifer before um, giving the baby to her intended parents. Are you allowed to do that? What? Like name the kid before you give it back. Yeah. I think a lot of, I've read like like even adopt, like if you have your own kid that's going to be adopted, a lot of people will just be like, oh, like to me, this baby's Jennifer. And then like it's not legal <laughs> but like it's not like a legal name it's just this is what i'm calling it oh okay <laughs> <laughs> that makes me think of it. i think it's weird when people adopt children who are not babies and then rename them rename that's them. just weird yeah. i would like to throw that in there that is my opinion <laughs> continue um well so in order to become a surrogate um and i was actually surprised that they did this in the 80s because i feel like kind of like how you describe i feel like before like i don't know 2005 the whole world was just like flying by the seat of their pants and just doing things i mean we still are but (laughs) yeah but um so in order to become a surrogate diane had to pass multiple psychological evaluations to determine her like emotional and mental like fitness to like go through something one like pregnancy I don't care how you slice it. It's traumatic to the body and the mind, even if you enjoy it. Um, 
and um, also to give your child to give a child that you carried and birthed away, like really making sure that there wouldn't be um, any complications, I guess, in that aspect of things. And so she passed all of her psychological evaluations. And so as a more sustainable means of supporting for herself, Diane worked for the United States Postal Service as a mail carrier in Oregon. Um, and despite this person being not great, we should protect the U.S. Postal Service. Yes. <laughs> and so. I love the U.S. Postal Service. I'm like, have you guys tried to ship something through FedEx? It's expensive. Like- I just <laughs> shipped. I drew a picture of my grandma's dead dog and I shipped it to her and it only cost me $10. Yeah. I Two yeah. day shipping. Anyway. Anyway, so before relocating to Oregon, um, Diane met a man named Robert Knickerbocker, who, for the most part, I'm going to say his full name, because when you've got a last name like (laughs) Robert Knickerbocker, you say the name. Um, And so uh, she met Robert Knickerbocker in Arizona, and he was a married former co-worker of of hers, and they began having an affair. Putting it lightly, Diane seemed to have an unhealthy attachment to Robert Knickerbocker. And so... Well, with a name like that. (laughs) So much so that he would eventually report to police that Diane stalked him and was willing to kill his wife if it meant that she could have Robert Knickerbocker all to herself. Um, He went on to say that when she had to relocate to Oregon, he was actually relieved and he took that time to really focus on his marriage and reconcile um, for the indiscretions that he had. Um, And so we're going to fast forward a little bit to the night of the incident on (laughs) on. May 19th, 1983, Diane arrived at Mackenzie Willamette Hospital with her three children, all between the ages of eight and three, in the back seat. Each passenger of the vehicle had suffered an apparent gunshot wound, including Diane. As a result of their injuries, uh, Christy, who was eight years old at the time, suffered a stroke. Cheryl Lynn, who was seven years old at the time, was dead upon arrival. Danny, who was three years old, became paralyzed from the waist down. Meanwhile, Diane had a gunshot wound in her left arm. Diane told hospital staff and police that she was driving with her children when a bushy-haired stranger attempted to carjack her on a rural, rural, rural road near Springfield, Oregon. Did you ever watch 30 Rock? No. Oh, well, there's this, like, funny part of it where um, the one lady is in a TV show called The Rural Juror. And it's like this running joke throughout the whole show. It's like the ridge. That just yeah, makes me think I can't say that. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, so yeah, she said a bushy-haired stranger attempted to carjack her on a rural road near Springfield, Oregon. She claimed that the strange man shot her and her children, but she was able to get away and drive her children to the hospital. Diane would later testify saying, I felt like I was in a nightmare. It's one of those things where you want to do something. You know you should do something, but you're not there, really. She claims that she shoved the man down, got back in the car, and sped to the hospital. Hospital staff and investigators were initially suspicious of Diane because they felt like she was too calm for someone who had just experienced a traumatic event. A doctor named John Mackey would testify that when I observed, sorry, that what I observed was a woman who 
was very calm, very self-assured, not tearful, not angry, occasionally smiling, occasionally chuckling. I saw a woman who appeared to be in very good control of herself. And so this is kind of similar to like something you mentioned in your case. People of trauma do not act a certain way, whether it's sexual assault, physical violence, a carjacking. They don't have to act frantic and shaken up and whatever you're describing. Their response even though it looks calm could just be like a very straight like a disassociative like effect like there's no people who I don't know I just feel like even though in their case they were right that she something was off about how she was acting I just think it's really important that we don't reinforce this narrative that all trauma survivor survivors all act a certain way yeah I'm glad Um, I'm glad that we're doing that Yeah. And so anyway, uh, like I said, in the case of Diane, um, there were other suspicious behaviors that caused investigators to start looking at Diane as the possible attacker or assailant. Um, Hospital staff reported that she made a number of inappropriate comments. Um, I... I didn't look too hard, but I didn't find any, like, quotes of those statements. Um, In addition, the first call that Diane made when she got to the hospital was not to family and not to their father. Instead, guess who she called? Oh, no. She called Knickerbocker, didn't she? She called Robert Knickerbocker, her former married lover in Arizona. Oh. Um... And so investigators were also able to discern that Diane and her children were shot by a 22 caliber um, handgun or a weapon. I don't know. Um, And they weren't able to locate a weapon, but they did learn from Steve Downs, the children's father and uh, Diane's ex-husband and Robert Knickerbocker that Diane owned a 22 caliber handgun. They never found the handgun, but they were able to find like shell casings and stuff like that um, in her home. And uh, similarly, the forensic evidence um, did not corroborate Diane's account of what happened. If the attack happened the way Diane said, um, within reason, sometimes like the account of a trauma isn't exact. But for the most part, the moving parts, I feel like the bare bones are usually there. Um, So if the attack happened the way that she said, uh, there should have been more blood spatter on the driver's side of the car, and there should have been gunpowder residue on the driver's door. Um, There were neither of these things. So no gun, no blood, like where she said she was shot, nothing like that. Um, And lastly, Diane reported to police um, that she sped to the hospital as fast as she could. But eyewitnesses reported her reported seeing her vehicle driving very slow and when i first read this i was like i mean slow what what do you mean by that also it could have been any car whatever but then i was able to find that she drove to the hospital no faster than seven miles per hour what like we're not even talking like five below the speed limit we're not even talking at the speed limit she drove between five to seven miles per hour and so yeah i think it like if i was just on my normal routine and there's like this car i'd be like mm, that's a little weird that that car is driving so slow you know yeah it's like nearly stopped yeah um i like when i have to drive like 
20 through like a school zone i'm like i'm barely moving but yeah that's so was that because she was like wanting to make sure that her children were definitely like dead before i have no idea i thought i think it's i could see both one i'm like she did shoot herself in the arm oh yeah who knows like if she was in pain but i also think though if you are trying to one she said she sped so that is a lie so you've established yourself as a liar um and number two like I would think that you would be trying to speed to make sure that you like could save your children and I do think that she was going slowly not to save well yeah because that's something that Mary Beth did in my case clearly like she learned from her mistakes of bringing her children in too early when they were able to be revived Um, mm -hmm. um another thing and I didn't write down too much of it, but another thing, she originally described the attacker as like a bushy haired, strange person or whatever. And she kept changing like what, like the descriptors of this guy. Like she, um, I don't know why I didn't write it down. But like, just as you're looking, I don't think it's uncommon for people who have experienced trauma to kind of remember things in pieces. But I think yeah. coming up with a different descriptor altogether. <laughs> I agree. So she first referred to him as a bushy-haired stranger, shaggy-haired stranger. Then she said it was two men wearing ski masks. And then she said it was, um, like, corrupt law enforcement officials. And then she said it was drug dealers. Oh, okay. It wasn't even, like, within the realm of the original. It's not like she said, oh, he had black hair. Nope, it was dark brown. Um, She was, like, giving very different accounts of what was happening. Um. And so ultimately, all of this evidence, though some of it a little circumstantial, um, the police felt like they had enough. And so on February 28th, 1984, Diane was arrested and charged with one count of murder two count, and two counts of attempted murder and criminal assault. At the time of her arrest, Diane was also pregnant with another child with whom, um, whom she gave birth to just before the trial began. Uh, that child she named Amy Elizabeth, uh, but Amy Elizabeth was adopted like pretty much immediately by and renamed Rebecca by her parents. Um, and she's come like publicly. She's like, yep, I'm the Rebecca whose mom is Diane Downs. Oh, and wow. she's spoken to like Oprah and like what it's like for her. Um, and she doesn't consider Diane her mother. Um, Fair. And so... During Diane's trial, the prosecution claimed that Diane shot her children because um, at some point in an attempt to break up with to break things off with her, Robert Knickerbocker told her that "Mm, I want to like I don't think we can like pursue each other anymore because I just really don't see children in my life. And so rather than read between the lines and understand that this man was just not that into her, the prosecution argued that Diane shot her children with the intention of killing them so that she could be free to continue her relationship with Robert. Um, Horrible. Um, And so the smoking gun, I guess. (laughs) Literally, (laughs) maybe. Yeah. uh, The smoking gun in this trial lied however in the testimony of diane's nine-year-old daughter christy who survived the attack oh um due to her injuries christy she had a stroke and she actually temporarily lost the ability to speak but 
once she recovered, um, she took the stand to testify against her mother. Christy described how her mother parked their car on the side of the road and shot her and her siblings at point blank range before taking the gun and shooting herself. So she like saw it all. She remembers and she was like very clear. My mom did this, Um, which is horrifying that a nine year old like, I almost feel like best case scenario, they don't remember, right? Right. That's And it's horrifying that not only did she remember and she saw what happened to her siblings and herself, but then she had to be the one to testify because she was the only witness. Oh, my like, goodness. Um, and so on June 17th, 1984, a jury of her peers convicted Diane on all charges. On all charges. Um, a judge sentenced her to life in prison plus 50 years and the her earliest possible eligibility for parole is actually this year so 2020 um however a judge has made it clear that he does not intend for diane to ever be released from prison Mm. um psychiatrists have since diagnosed diane with narcissistic personality disorder histrionic personality personality disorder and antisocial personality disorder um I find it interesting, all three of those, because I think in certain areas they contradict, in certain areas they overlap. Um, I was also surprised. Um, I don't know. I I could see some other diagnoses to go with that as well, also in the personality disorder family. But um, her surviving children, uh, Christy and Danny, were adopted by the lead prosecutor on the case, Fred Hughes, and his wife, Joanne. Oh my goodness! Yeah, that's kind of that's wild. Yeah, I find yeah, I a lot of feelings about this. I guess there one Danny wasn't Steve Downs's child, and so I don't know. Yeah, I don't know the ins and outs of like why they were adopted and didn't they weren't I guess automatically given to their father, but it seems like they. It's just weird that the prosecutor adopt that just seems sort of like a conflict of conflict interest, of interest to me mm-hmm. and it's just a very interesting position to be put in i would probably not recommend that someone who like put your mother away be the person that adopt oh that's yeah. a that's a weird I situation be, i could also i could also see maybe like when like prosecutors had to speak to like christy and stuff maybe like they like they just really took to like Fred and maybe if his wife was right, you know what I mean? Like they, right. like those kids just didn't they had experienced such a trauma and didn't want to be with anyone else or something. Um, but they ultimately seem to have had like a happy Well that's life good. As long with... as they had a good life. Mm-hmm. Or are continuing but, to have a good life. So three years after her sentencing, um, while she was incarcerated at the Oregon's Women's Correctional Center in Salem, Oregon, Diane somehow managed to escape from prison on july 11th 1987 (laughs) like what (laughs) anyway um but this is where i think is like the dumbest part she was actually recaptured 10 days later but she was only a few blocks away from the prison so i'm like why why did you escape if you were just well she, i out? mean it would make sense that she maybe didn't have the means like she didn't have money she didn't have like a I car guess, she didn't like, have a plane run. ticket she was only a flu but a few blocks okay okay like 
Was she like staying with someone? Maybe that's like all she had. I don't know. I have no idea, but I feel like if you just escaped from somewhere, you might want to get away from like that Fair place enough. because they're going to be looking for you. Fair enough. Um, but after the escape, Fred Hughie, the prosecutor who adopted um, Christy, or I guess Christy and Danny's father at this point, um, he was worried that Diane had escaped and she was actually trying to find the Hughie home. Oh, no. um, to either harm or kidnap the children. And so uh, Fred did everything that he could and he lobbied heavily for Diane to be transferred. And she eventually was actually transferred to the New Jersey uh, Department of Corrections Clinton Correctional Facility for Women. And she stayed there for 10 years um, and she eventually was transferred to the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation in 94. Great year. Um, Great year. Yeah. I feel like every time 94 comes up, we both are like, shout out. Um, But ultimately, yeah, so she's just been in prison forever, I guess. I know she just had like some sort of news article about how she feels like coronavirus is running rampant through her correctional facility. But I guess they tested two inmates only and those came back negative and only one correctional worker had it. But I didn't go too deep into that because I personally didn't. I mean, that's, Um, I understand that, like, if you look at it as a blank slate, being kept in that position right now, I feel like would be awful, but I would definitely, yeah, it's just, it's interesting that so many articles like that are popping up now. Mm -hmm. And the last thing, which is actually kind of a cool connection to a previous case that I did, so... um, I feel like with cases like this, a lot of times fiction ends up being written about it and so the book small sacrifices was written by Anne rule based on diane's life crime and murder trial the book was eventually turned into a tv movie by the same name starring farrah fawcett um and she farrah fawcett also played the character based on francine hughes um oh, wow. in the movie the burning bed um which was the case that i did a few weeks ago so very interesting. Oh, Anne Rule. She was uh, Ted Bundy's, like, friend. And she writes oh. crime books now. Oh, cool, cool, cool. I mean... Just another cool connection there. Not but... not that cool. But just interesting yeah. that she ended up being, like... Well, not interesting, I guess, because she was, like, writing about him and then started to do all the yeah. other ones. Yeah. And so, in my case, I feel like with those, like, groupings of uh motives that i had gone over in the beginning i feel like she falls into the fourth category which is unwanted child filicide right um so a mom thinking that her children are like a hindrance in some way and so in this case they were like getting in the way of her being able to be with robert knickerbocker um knickerbocker i also think he and his wife attended the trial so I don't think he was going to get with you anyway, ma'am. Our music is the track Wasteland by Joseph McDade. His Patreon and our podcast sources will be linked in the podcast description below. Any mistakes are entirely our own, so check out our wonderful sources for the most accurate information about these cases. We talk about some tough subject matter on our show. If you or someone you love is in need of support, please reach out to the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741741. They are available 24-7 and will connect you with a trained crisis counselor. You can also reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline by calling 1-800-799-7233. 
Thank you so much for listening to our show. Join us next week for another episode of Pink Collar, a true crime podcast. <laughs>